This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Furminger. My mission is to pull back the curtain on Vancouver's film and television industry and expose its beating heart, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom style, by getting deep and down and a little dirty with the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. Today, I am delighted to welcome Teach Grant to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. I've never interviewed Teach Grant before, which is rare, and I don't know how this has happened that we haven't really spoken, but it's happened. But what I know about Teach comes entirely from his work, and his work indicates a commitment to grit and nuance and realism. Teach's lengthy and expanding filmography includes Van Helsing, Altered Carbon, Damnation, The Romeo Section. I love how that's all like super not light fair <laughs> at all. Uh, and the severely underrated and canceled way before its time Strange Empire, The Hundred, and Rush. My favorite Teach Grant role is that of Welder in Anna Valine's atmospheric and incredibly creepy Once There Was a Winter, which reunited him with Romeo Section co-star and friend of the podcast, Juan Redinger. Recently, he was seen inhabiting the role of psychopathic school and neighborhood bully Henry Bowers in It Chapter 2. So today, we're going to get to know Teach Grant. I'm going to get to know Teach Grant. We're going to figure out what makes him tick. And we're going to talk about horror. And specifically, what is this like stepping into an iconic horror franchise like It? Teach Grant. Hey. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Studio. Thank you for having me. How have we not met before? We, we've met in passing. We've met in passing, but to sit down and to have a conversation, I, I just... I think, I think Danielle reached out to you during uh, the release of Winter. Yeah. And your slate was full. And, and we were kind of <laughs> Is put this on, like a shaming we, moment? We, we were put on a back burner there. And I it think wasn't that you were had... put on the back burner. I spoke to Anna. I spoke you to did. Anna. You did. You yeah. Did. And I... I don't, don't necessarily mean back burner. I just meant that <laughs> there was it was a contingency that if there was space, then yeah. it was something we would endeavor to make. Yeah, happen. but I I mean I I have so much love for once there was a winter. It is actually I mean let's go right into it. It is yeah. what one of my favorite films that it because it's it's told through a female lens and yet it doesn't pass the Bechdel tense test you know like it, it has that it, it is a horror film essentially it's definitely a thriller mm-hmm. and it is all told from this like feminine perspective and yet there's one female character mm-hmm. and these three like archetypes and uh, I was cold watching that whole film and she doesn't and, even have a name yeah and I she mean she doesn't speak to another female yeah. and, and all these I mean even the movie that I wrote or co-wrote and directed back in 2014 passed that test and yeah. it was actually something but point when, when we were making we we're like we need to pass that test yeah and yet it, so once there was a winter it doesn't and yet it's such a commentary on masculinity and about you know relationships and i mean i mean your name in that film 
was welder. I mean, it was profession, right? Like mm-hmm. it was welder, and there was hunter, hunter and, and plumber. Plumber, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, I don't know where to start with you, Teach, because we've like I'm I'm so familiar with your work, but I I don't know you at all. And most of the people who come into the studio, I know pretty well. Well, so. why don't why don't we go back? And so, then, and then, awesome. and then we can make our way towards. Uh, I love it. So there's a narrative arc there. Okay, yeah. so we're going to get into the Wayback Machine. You can use your time travel vehicle of choice. We can do mm-hmm. the TARDIS. We can do the DeLorean. I'm, I'm a flux can, capacitor kind okay, of guy. Okay, a flux for capacitor. Sure. Yeah, that's pretty much the vehicle of choice. So we're going to go back in time. Uh, where were you, a little kid? Um, I grew up in North York, um, which okay. is in the GTA. Mel Aspen Square. I'm familiar with North North York. I'm familiar right. with. So we're gonna. So we're going to Young and Finch. Where are we going? So um, we're <laughs> Don Mills, York Mills. I grew up in a low income building that overlooked the 401. So near and Fairview. The DVP. I used to be an usher at the Fairview Mall Theater. No way! Yeah. I saw films at the Fairview Mall Theater. Oh my god! Are you yeah. from where you just had been? There? I spent my teen years in the GTA. I, okay. My family, like for my teen years, I lived in Newmarket. Okay. So I mean, you know that entire corridor. You know, and it was before the Shepherd Line opened as well. But yeah, we I I'm familiar. Okay, so we're going to we're going to the GTA, everybody, and we're gonna go and meet eight year old Teach Grant. Who, what what kid is opening the door? What kind of kid? What was wow. he into? Wow, I mean, at eight years old, he was, uh, you know, we were all growing up in kind of um, like a hangover to that sort of macho 70s kind of male patriarchy where things were really uh, hunting and fishing with my dad and yeah. hit him hard, hit him low, be the, the strongest, fastest, best kind of athlete yeah. uh, that you could be. And, and sort of winning was was the currency of the day. Yeah. Um, Sounds so exhausting. For the, yeah, so for that, I mean, it really was just a little kid trying to um, impress his dad on a field, on the ice, sort of in, in any way that he could. Um, as well, growing up in this awesome kind of uh, multicultural sandlot, yeah. you know, with a latch key and, and a BMX. And, you know, going back to that day, just looking at the childhood we were able to have and sort of those freedoms. And, and it was, you know, it was at last light yeah. that hide and seek ended, you know. And it's like stand by home. me near the DVP. 100 <laughs> percent. And every day it was a different sport. And you know, like all my friends, you know, it was white, Jamaican, Trinidadian, Guyanese, Puerto Rican, yeah. you know, South Asian. And it was just this massive bubble of kids. Because kids are kids are kids. Our kids. And the world hadn't started whispering in our ears yet, you know, to point out the differences. And, you know, this is a time before girls even, you know, became girls. Yeah. So looking back <laughs> to those moments, I mean, it, there wasn't a whole lot of resources going around. And most of us, had, you know, never met our dads or didn't know who our dads were. Or, yeah. You know, they just left and, you know, a lot of single moms. and um, But a, a good core group of kids that even till now, uh, as we communicate online, uh, despite difficult times, have nothing but positive feelings, you know, about the way we interacted as kids. Yeah. So, like, did you come from creative, artistic 
performers or like like what what no. who did you come from and like what did and like how did this happen? Um, you know, moving forward into my teen years or at twelve, um, I started doing plays. Yeah, and not at that point didn't really quite get it or realize what I was getting out of it. Uh, and I did some voiceover work at Owl TV, if you remember what yeah. uh, Owl TV was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they would show, like, you know, an elephant would walk into a zoo enclosure and then a child would narrate what was going on. That's and so good. I mean, I, I had a subscription to Chickadee and Owl magazine. Okay, well, then so. that was in our, our, our public school library as well. And I remember wow. on this one occasion, it was the last time I went, uh, I was doing this voiceover, and then a producer walked into the the booth, and I don't think she realized that I could hear what they were saying in there. And and I was maybe twelve and a half years old, and she said, "Oh my God, he sounds just like a little girl." <gasps> oh no! <laughs> and that was the last time I went. And oddly, oh, when you're a twelve year old boy, you do not want to hear. You that. don't want to hear that. And oddly, oh. looking back at that. That was down in Queens Key was a studio and at 12 years old I was taking a bus and a subway all the way, you know, unescorted, you know, just things you couldn't see nowadays. Um, So moving forward into high school, um, I was skateboarding and and I thought skateboarding was where I was going to go. I was a vert skater and uh, playing a lot of hockey And, and so everything was sports, 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 sports sitting around the dinner table in my family, not really an artistic family, although my parents did like, you know, to see the kids drawing, uh, you know, doing that kind of thing. Yeah. But emotional expression um, wasn't super welcome at the dinner table, if we even ate at the dinner table. Um, come from a, a pretty blue collar cut. Um, so our toils and trials of discovering our humanity as as teenagers and and our emotional issues weren't really embraced by the family so you're a little bit left alone with it and they only had so much patience for it yeah so when i discovered theater in high school i was like okay like i can i am my theater teacher ended up being somewhat of a mentor coming from a, a hyper masculine sort of upbringing to having this very overtly gay uh, high school drama teacher yeah. um, was a bit of a, an eye opener because it suddenly asked me to see things a little bit differently to to kind of open up and experience my world in a different way. Yeah. And he'd kind of show me that I could experience my own angst and my emotions from within a character, and and I could sort of secretly have this exercise. So when I discovered that, um, it became. Uh, an outlet for me, and, wow. and some, and that some. That must have been so freeing. One hundred percent, and and so uh, when I got to do that on stage, I was like, okay, this is, this is what it's going to be. Yeah. So, at what point then did you articulate, I want to be an actor. I'm going to pursue this life. You know, yeah. and, and what kind of conversation was that with your, you know, because like I have like blue collar family too. Like it's it's not a it's not the easiest conversation to have with people who just don't understand. I didn't even that tell life. my parents first. Do they know now? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually told Mr. Stanbury, who was my my high school drama teacher, and 
Um, I'd also been building all the sets for the high school from my junior year. Oh, so cool. Yeah, I had background in carpentry from skateboarding. I'd built skate parks. Transferable skills, yeah. 15, <laughs> and I told him, I was like, I want to get an agent, and I want to get headshots, and I want to be an actor. And he said to me, I think you should be a carpenter. And um, looking back, I did. And, and I became a, a full uh, trades guy and, and, and a carpenter and, and oh, I had a, wow. a contracting business. Um, if I didn't do that, I guarantee I wouldn't be acting today. Yeah. Um, just you went the Harrison Ford route. I went the Harrison, although I didn't get like plucked out of uh, the neighboring studio into Star Wars, but yeah. Um, yeah, well, that I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, but uh, you know, not it, everybody it, does that. That's Harrison Ford's story. But you know what? What a great background, though, to it have. It kept me in the game. Yeah, it, you know, and it kept me uh, through the feast and the famine, and then also just having something to focus on and apply myself to daily, so that when my wife and I bought our own place, I was actually able to gut it and, and renovate it, and um, which was a good time for us. A lot of a lot of friction because she's an interior designer by trade. Oh and my god! Yeah, <gasps> it was like one of those TV shows. Wow. Yeah. Um, Why didn't you didn't have? Did you have cameras following you? That, no. Oh my no, god! No, and we really you could have sold that HGTV. <laughs> I would watch that. <laughs> HGTV, the R-rated version. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. So, I. While you're pursuing carpentry, though, were you was that still in your mind about pursuing acting, like, or were you working on that craft, or did you kind of shelve that? No, it was never shelved. It was never shelved. It was it was a means to an end. Um, I quickly realized that serving and bartending and you know the bucket of name tags that I'd collected over the years just just wasn't going to be it. Um, carpentry gave me a sense of satisfaction and pride. Yeah, and also occupied my mind enough in in order for it to fulfill me, in a sense when you know acting was lean or or it wasn't really working out. Um, but because I was self-employed, it also gave me the freedom uh, to get off work when I needed to learn lines or even you know for auditions and and furthermore and you know for bookings. So it became a really good companion piece, um, hard on the body for mm. sure. And then as you can imagine when all these HGTV shows came out and people got to look into sort of the behind the scenes of how much things should cost and process, um, it became very difficult to please people with the amount of money that they had. Oh. Um, and so it became actually a really frustrating process. Um, and then also it is, and it's, it got a little bit stressful, um, especially when I became more successful in acting that I had a hard time balancing both things. Um, and so I started restricting it to friends and favors. And um, then 2011, 2012, I basically just phased it out professionally. Yeah. And, and now it's become um, kind of like my art, yeah. if you will. Like I like making installation pieces for the house or a nice piece of furniture. Or my wife and I bought a, a 1978 17-foot bowler a year and a half ago. And so we gutted that. And, and that's kind of our, our hotel on wheels. And oh, wow. That's what I stay in when I go down to L.A. I drag it down and I stay in an RV park uh, in uh, Van Nuys. And, and it's uh, it's kind of it's sort of like lethal weapon, just not as scenic. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I'm going to leave it packed for now. All right. Uh, because I, I'm, I'm curious, though, about your your first foray. Foray? Foray. 
Foray works. Foray works. Your entry into the the film and television biz, you know, because we we've talked about, mm-hmm. you know, what your high school theater teacher was able yeah. to do for you and this kind of the passion then that it unlocked. But how did you get into this biz specifically? And like, what was your what were some of your first reactions to? Because this is kind of you know, an insane world in and of itself. Right? Yeah, I mean, one hundred percent theater. Well, yeah, and, and it was actually through theater uh, out here. I'd, I'd gone up to the University of Ottawa um, from Toronto to enroll in the drama program, and it just wasn't working. I didn't even know um, that U of O had a drama program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I spent and, a lot of time in Ottawa. Oh, did you? I yeah. went to both Carleton and Ottawa U. And you so went to Carleton? My mom did journalism at Carleton. Oh, wow. I went to Queens. Okay. So we hung out um, in Ottawa a lot. Yeah. And Hull. And and yeah, we went to Hull and we went to Montreal for the weekends. Yeah, Crescent Street, St. Catharines, good times. Um, it's uh, and I was doing sock and buskin theater company at Carleton University. Okay. And then at Ottawa U, the program was just so rigid, and we were doing our production, and they had me playing uh, like a sixty-five-year-old magistrate, and I was an extremely youthful. 19 yeah you know and it just felt so bizarre like I felt more it'd be more appropriate for me to have been doing the outsiders yeah at that age and they're giving me a, a character model of Jacques Parizeau yeah um and it just I wasn't getting what I wanted out of it and and so I made a very quick decision I just dropped out so it was, is it safe to say that it was killing the passion in some ways or was in danger of like? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I wanted to go and I don't even know what was out yet, but I was angling towards basketball diaries. Mm. You know what I mean? Like young Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to do that kind of work. And so I knew that I could probably find that in a black box, yeah. not in a university stage where they've got to cast as many of the students as they can in these big productions. Yeah. Um, so I just booked a ticket, one-way ticket out to Vancouver and did why Vancouver um because the x-files was out here yeah it was literally the only (laughs) thing that I knew yeah um and I tried the agent thing in Toronto for a little bit before university and I was just getting commercials or I was getting like stale Canadian courtroom drama of the early 90s street Um, legal yeah (laughs) and and it wasn't it just wasn't working for me and I wanted a fresh start and I'd always gravitated towards um the oceans and the mountains, and it, it was sort of a place that I knew would would suit me. And originally, it was just going to be a bootleg to L.A., and yeah. this was the heel. Cut to 26, 27 years later, and <laughs> and you know, Vancouver's awesome, and, and yeah. it's a great place to call home. I mean, even the X Files came back. Even the X Files <laughs> came back, and yeah. you know, so I got out here and I did that same thing that every actor does. You know, I, I got into black box theater and. Uh, there was a theater down on Homer Street called The Looking Glass, and, and I spent two or three years there just going from show to show to show and took some classes with Andrew McElroy okay. and, and walked my resume around town, which was all lies at that point to every agent that, that I could think of. and, and um, It was lies? Like it was like, I did this commercial, I did this show? Yeah, and... of course, because I had nothing. You know, I had a couple student films. Yeah, at, there was no IMDB or anything back There was no the IMDB, you could get a lot, in, and there were no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there weren't security cams everywhere. Yeah, and what did you want? Like when you were walking it around, what is it that you're like? What was your goal at that point? 
Um, I just wanted to get an audition. Yeah. I just wanted to get started, and I was looking at the Georgia Stray every Thursday. You know, you'd wake up, you'd run to the box, you'd get the Georgia Stray, you'd open it up and see what was casting. You're not the first person who's talked about the Georgia Stray. Yeah, as a, it was Mike Dopud we had in here recently, yeah. and he was talking about looking at that. And he, I mean, his story is he went to the union with his headshot, and he's like, I need to find an agent, help me. And yeah. they laughed at him. That's pretty they, great. Yeah. So, wow, that is, so you're you're open in the Georgia Stray, and you're like, I'll That's do really anything. Dope, Dopey's a good guy. Yeah. I, play, I play hockey with Dopey. <laughs> of course you know, Lachlan. I'm, and Lachlan, yeah. Lachlan the same team um they're both i love really that this players. community is well the bright light a small hockey, town yeah the bright light hockey mafia yeah. yeah oh yeah it's not a team it's, it sounds it's, very badass it's a mafia yeah <laughs> um so there's this one particular movie it was called limp and it was in 1997 in the fall and they were looking for a 25 year old sort of jaded brooding you know good looking guy liner rock star type character yeah um, which wasn't me, and, and I knew it. <laughs> but I, I just want I wanted to go, and yeah. and it was just I felt you just got to start. Yeah. You, you, and it was literally going to be my first on camera audition in Vancouver. So I got on my skateboard and I pushed over the Canby Bridge to an old converted warehouse on on Fifth. Oh, I love that Avenue. whole area. Yeah, and it, it's losing I think its it, charm a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's all, it's all warehouses, right? Or we used to be all warehouses, and in them it would be like recording studios. Yeah, and, and bands. And yeah. So they they converted the studio into what eventually they ended up calling the Rat Trap, and they used yeah. it as, as a setting as well. And I was rolling down Fifth, and I just saw this massive line coming out of this this studio, and it was over a block long, and it was one of those moments where you just kind of kick up the tail and, and lean on your skateboard for a second and, and start considering if you're actually going to do it. Because yeah. some of these people had the long jet black hair and they looked like, they looked the part. Yeah. And you're young and, you know, you just, you're, you're nervous and, and you're kind of starting to question. And so something, I don't know why, I just got back on my skateboard and rolled up and joined the back of the line and kind of stood there with my hands in my pockets and um, 10 minutes later a couple producers come out and they're walking past the line and then they walk up straight to me and they're like so um, the director saw you out the window and we're not uh, we don't see you as the Mac character as the brooding rock star but there is a, a really kind of sweet insecure um, kind of uh younger guy in this group in the band he's not in the band but uh it's a band of skateboarders and and you know you can call him a nerd if you want in the group and uh he'd like to read you for that so i went in and, and read and you know cut to a call back the the following week and then um yeah so it was an independent film called limp and it featured michael hutchins um ah, and it was oh. literally a month before his passing and and it's kind of movie was never released and, and in the movie he has this monologue where he talks about Kurt Cobain and how basically you know in a sense he'd done the right thing otherwise he'd become you know just a, another passing flavor of the day <sighs> um, so it it's kind of has this dark projection to it um, and I thought I made it I was like I got an unpaid back end independent film that got me into the union yeah. which was great 
but I was designing uh, logos, and I used to have a, a clothing company back in in the late '90s as well. And my wow, early, you're really hustling back in the my, day. My my early experiences with that was with NFA. Do you remember that snowboarding line? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I used to do all their T-shirts and all their artwork. Oh my god! Back, back I, in I mean, the day. I was a teenager in the '90s, so right. So <laughs> yeah, we all had that that unfortunate cut of pant. Yes, we did. Um, and I quit. Yeah. To get involved oh in God. this movie. And I ended up losing my apartment. I ended up living in the studio, which only had like a makeshift Wait, shower the, that, you know. The had, rat trap? In the rat trap. Um, and it only had cold water in this makeshift shower. And then I would sleep under the accountant's desk every night because she had a ceramic heater. And yeah. she would always come in in the morning. She's like, "Teach, you can't sleep under my desk." <laughs> and um, that was—I uh, was just so happy to be working that I thought it's never going to stop. Yeah. You know. Wow. I mean, that really also tells me that this was your calling. You know, like that you were where, like where you're literally living in a place called the Rat Trap. You know, well, but I, because I, you were doing something that you love so much, you were so happy. The experience of being on camera, though, f- the first time, what was that like? You know, and did it meet whatever? Because it seems like your expert, your expectations were high. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was um, another reason why theater didn't really, especially uh, large scale production stuff, is it always felt so broad to me, and and the black box stuff came in you know 20 rows deep kind of black box theater where yeah. it could be a little bit more intimate oh I broad because you know it's it's about reaching as many exactly. people in the theater as and, possible and right? it wasn't a performance style that really you know suited me naturally um so it gave me an, an opportunity and and the director was was really i guess accommodating and good with that that we were, we were going to find that sort of non-acting acting style in in this movie um, Non-acting well, acting, so we're talking about very naturalistic. Very, very yeah. naturalistic, which I guess is the show that essentially brought me out here was to try and get on the X-Files. And, yeah. and in a sense, they kind of broke that mold, if if you will. Um, so it, it gave me a chance to experiment with the process in a way that it felt natural to me and point my nose in a direction that I thought felt right. Yeah. So when it premiered at the... Dublin International Film Festival in 2000 and, and I went over there and, and it's another one of those it's, it's kind of funny looking back but at the time it was it was like a hard cold slap of reality when, mm. when you fly to the other side of the pond and you go to this film festival and you have a couple gin and tonics in advance in order to quell your nerves and the cast's all there and you go into the theater and it's you know six or seven people from production and like literally nine paying guests in an empty theater um but it was just one of those moments where i sat down and i watched and and you know there were thumbs up thumb down thumb sideways and in my personal review of of what i was doing but at the end of the day i was able to sit there and go you're doing it yeah and you can do it you know there are things to work on but i see it yeah. And and so it was that buy in, believe it moment, if you will, because yeah. until then you, it it's like teenage confidence and young bravado, you don't really know. You yeah. just think. And so that was a 
a no moment, I guess. Yeah. So when was the first time? So that was the experience of seeing yourself up there and doing that. Yeah. Doing that. But what was like? What was the first role or some of the first roles where you felt like I'm doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing? Like this is a character that I love. This is a project that I that I love. Because like the way that I think that success kind of works, right? Or or enjoyment of a career is like it's it's a progression. It's mm-hmm. an evolution. You're not mm-hmm. constantly looking for the same thing. You're looking for for deeper and, mm-hmm. and more entrenched. So what were some of those like um, those characters that really grabbed you? Yeah, there's a character named Conrad Dean in Devour. Mm. Um, and, and I think that was the first time that I really got to swing the bat the way that I want to. And it's horror again. Um, and it had sort of enough conflict you know uh, it was young college sort of conflict and and it's horror and we've only got so much time for um, you you know the the social conflict and horror before we and that kind of horror before people just you know start getting killed Um, but it was enough and and it was something that I could take and run with and and take Mm. and take as deep as I I, I could uh, given what we were doing and um that was a really good litmus test for me to see exactly horror. And that's one great thing about horror is no one's a little bit scared. No one's a little angry. It's always dialed up to 11. Yeah. And so it gave me an opportunity to experience how far I could take something emotionally before tipping the scale, yeah. you know, and how deep I could take things. And so that was the first opportunity for me to really kind of, in a sense, is line me up for being... And I think what I do is is very real. Yeah. But I think where I work best is in the emotional extremes, which is a bit weird. That's when I'm at most uh, invigorated in, in my most comfortable place. There. It sounds like you're having fun. Like for you, horror is the most fun. Horror, or or like even like with winter, mm. where um, everything's on a piano wire, and oh, yeah. and everything is just. Uh, so detailed and minimal yet intense and quiet Um, it's in that just sort of severe kind of activation that that I think I I really get off I I don't do um, sort of dry toast very well and there are people Hmm. that do and they do it very well and they can float it it just doesn't come off of me well and I'm also just I'm not piqued by it so I like those exhausting sweaty days yeah is it I mean you've played some bad dudes some not very nice people right kind of a dick yeah Yeah. you're you're kind of a dick (laughs) yeah um Although you don't seem like one in real life, which mm. is great. Like, what what is what are some of the joys of being that of playing that kind of of character? You know, and do you need to have empathy and compassion for these really awful yeah, people? Yeah, these these are really good questions. Um, I think most importantly for me when I play these kind of characters, what I'm looking to do is muddy the waters a little bit. Um, muddy the waters. And yeah. and I, I certainly look to you know decline the one note bad guy um, yeah. because it's not interesting and that's a sliding scale because when you're hungry and you need to get paid mm-hmm. it affects your choices and you know I do it and I respect everyone who has to do that that's just reality yeah um, but uh, I like to muddy the water a bit and and I appreciate when that's available to me in the writing because you can kind of confuse the audience for a moment 
if if you can take an opportunity to get them to understand you for a second before turning into that asshole or before mm. doing that awful thing, um, then you're setting them up to be betrayed a little bit. And that triggers, you know, a way bigger emotional response to the character. Yeah. So effectively, that's that's kind of what I'm looking most to do. You're looking to put us through the ringer. <laughs> yeah. And and then when you look at these bad guys, and and we'll just, I know we're gonna get there later, but the, sort of the, the quick Cole's notes on on a character like Henry Bowers yeah. is, you know, the bully's not born; he's created. And he's created from a cycle of abuse. And that cycle of abuse, in his case, comes from his father. Often it's an older brother, a father, some figure in their lives, could be other bullies at school. And then that character becomes a bully. And then that character is likely going to begat more bullies. And, yeah. and that's, uh, But in there is a sensitive kid. And that kid is hurt, and he's angry, and he's lonely and he's forlorn and he just wants to be noticed and loved and valued and listened to um so that is an inferno of dark energy you know coming into an adulthood so for me it's got to draw back to um something vulnerable and something real and and it's people who are hurt they're the ones who can lash out to hurt you know the most are there any any types of roles you won't do yes. anymore? Oh, 100%. Okay. Yes, please, please state for the record what those roles are, please. Yeah, um, you know, that flashback M.O.W. rapist that's really there to just inform the trauma of the leading female. And you read the script and it's often, you're like, why? Why does it need to be a rape? It could be a mugging. It could be a car accident. It yeah. could be so many different things. But we're going to put forward this thing that reinforces this awful narrative. Yeah. And and of course, difficult to imagine anything worse. You know. Um, and it's one note. And and I've had straight offers to do this. Like, hey, um, how about Friday? Um, would you be interested in um, date raping Jill Hennessy? I'm like, I don't know Jill Hennessy. I don't know if she's recovering from something that happened to her. Yeah. Statistically, it's likely possible. Does she own it? Is she in recovery? Has she recovered? When I step onto set and I have to be a very real monster because of the way I work, um, respectfully so, what happens? And yeah. And then suddenly I'm a very real monster and who can who can recover from that experience and own it enough to bring it to film and and and, you know it's not for me to say and and certainly Mm. people may be able to but i don't want to have any part of it yeah and especially when it doesn't belong in the story yeah and doesn't need to be there um, I mean, often I, I believe because I have a I mean, I'm a I'm a survivor of sexual violence myself. Right. I, I feel like there is there is a power in um, in, you know, presenting a survivor story. Yes. But uh, often when we see sexual violence on screen, it isn't about empowering a survivor. It's about, you know, some like sick titillation, you know, and to end complicity in rape culture, right? So I, I yeah. find it like it's very admirable to be like, I'm not going to do that anymore, you know, and like, but I, I do feel like there are, you know, as somebody who is in a, in the audience and on, on this side of, 
on the viewing side of the industry, I, I get that there are situations where, like, you know, Karen Lamb had a wonderful, like, we'll say wonderful, but she, you know, had, uh, had there was a rape in her film Evangeline. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was handled so well because it was told through her specific lens. It mm-hmm. was framed in a certain way. And then, you know, the, the survivor went on to be possessed by demons and then kill everybody. And it was so great. I mean, um, undoubtedly, there are stories where it belongs. Yeah. But I think it's something that needs to be treated in a specific way where it's about that and we're learning something from it. And and people, at the end, something comes out of it that is a teachable moment yeah. or, or something more and deeper when it's just being used. Yeah. You know, and, and that's kind of, and then I feel used. But you as an actor, as a male actor who's saying, yeah. no, I'm not going to do it. Like, do you get pushback at all or are people being like, no? No. No, we don't, and 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 I lump kids in the same boat. Um, you know, there's there's no violence against children, unless you know, like the tall man. I had to throw my stepdaughter over, over the hood of a car, and then I took a bottle to the head from from my girlfriend, which is you know there was justice immediately paid, mm-hmm. and it was in a trailer park, and you know alcohol involved, and um, you know, and 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 looking at that too, it's it's like not that I wouldn't engage that kind of a project. Um, but it just couldn't be used, and it needs to be for the greater good. Yeah. And it was kind of, and that's sort of, it's easy to pick it out when it's not. And and that was like looking in with, with Winter when um, some of my first meetings with Anna um, were about uh, just as muddy as Welder's waters were, um, I wanted him to be a character that still had a moral compass. Yeah. And when we first, those early drafts, it kind of read more like he was in on it. Yeah. And then I'm like, you know, we have to have some kind of contrast. And, and my thing was, what if he just actually loves her mm. and is secretly in love with her? And we look at possession as, as an idea of, yeah. which has a darkness unto its own. Yeah. Um, it's not like you have to play the hero, you no, know. No, no. Well, he, and there's so many things opposing him to even be able to do that yeah. in, in that environment. Um, and for me, moving forward, it's something that I'm looking, uh, especially as I get older, is to put some things out there that just have uh, a greater moral compass, flawed as they are, uh, yeah. you know. And, and I think that's where the beauty and humanity is, is in our flaws. But to put some things out there that are just a little um, mustache-twisting, one-note kind of bad for the sake of being bad kind of characters and just to find some things that are a little bit more psychologically interesting. Yeah. Um, I love that you're a carpenter. I freaking love that. My father-in-law's uh, yeah. <laughs> a carpenter. Like I, I just, I, I mean, the, the ability to create and to spend that time and the patience and everything to be able to do that kind of work. How do you do you think that your work in that realm has impacted your work as an actor? Like, what kind of skills or or mindsets do you bring from your work as a carpenter to actor? Well, um, that's interesting. I never really even really thought of that. I think, yeah. firstly, it would be an appreciation. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, you know, I've I've done some lifting of houses and complete rebuilds uh, throughout the winter in in like Douglas Park and lifting of houses meaning literally like, like up on cribs. Wow. Yeah, and I was wondering um, about how that happens. It's a pretty intense and scary <laughs> operation, especially when you're under it. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, and it's freezing rain in January and, and you're out there for nine, ten hours a day. Um, the appreciation, I think, that those moments are some of these other uh, jobs that certainly paid less has given me the, the times it just getting to do what we get to do and to get paid to do that, um, it's it's a luxury and, and it's a privilege. Not that people don't deserve it and don't work for it, but it it really is it is a privilege and and it's lucky um, to just still be in the conversation 22 years later. Um, yeah. Hashtag blessed makes yep. me want to throw up in my own mouth but <laughs> more joke than anything. you are hashtag blessed yeah um hey we gotta keep we gotta stay hip for the youngins who are listening right I, i'm having a hard time keeping up i have to google acronyms twice a week yeah like people write something up tbh i'm like and I Google and yeah. I mean, I, I have the luxury of having an eight-year-old who is right. constantly telling me one what's hip and two how I am not mm-hmm. hip at all. Isn't it? So. Isn't it amazing culturally if you look at how <laughs> the inner world has actually changed the English language and how yeah. like we actually speak in buzzwords now, and then these trends will last for three or four months and then they're replaced by new buzzwords. And I mean, I guess pop culture had that influence on us before. Yeah, it just seems accelerated now. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Um, I want to take a minute to talk about one of my favorite personalities who haunts this neighborhood, which is Chris Haddock, which who you have had the opportunity to work with on on at least two different projects. I right? thought you were going to say Opera Man. Uh, okay, well, tell me about Opera Man. <laughs> no, I, I have no story. Opera Man haunts Kitsilano. No, like you know, because um, I, I love the work that you did on Romeo Section. I know I, I said that um, that Strange Empire was vastly underrated and canceled before its time, but so was Romeo Section. Isn't as that well. isn't that just a Canadian tale? It's a West Coast Canadian West Coast tale Canadian right tale. There. Absolutely. Um, um, can you talk to me though about the special magic of of Chris Haddock. You know, somebody's worked with him on two incredibly underrated projects, Intelligence and uh, Romeo Section. And Da Vinci's. And Owen oh, Da Vinci's. Yeah, which got, it actually, you know, had a run. That had a um, run. That was the one. And uh, Juan and I actually met, met on Winter. Yeah. Professionally. We'd known each other for 15 years. Um, we did Winter first, then Romeo. Which was actually oh. quite interesting. It was oh, just so I got the, the timeline. Yeah, it was just in the way that they came out. I guess uh, it's the way that I watched it, watched them. Then Haddock, um, Chris Haddock, has always kind of represented the bar to yeah. me. Um, it was sort of the the pat on the back or the feather in the cap was just getting into a Chris Haddock show, yeah. and 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 doing work that got through uh, Chris Haddock's bullshit meter. Yeah. Um, was was kind of uh, Chris Haddock has a well developed bullshit meter. Yeah, yeah, and and it's and it's just like how he likes it. Yeah, um, you know, quiet, rooted, grounded, real, no affectations, no bullshit. Give it to me straight, no ice, kind of just straight. Um, that's like a hashtag teach Grant. Yeah, literally, like the yeah. way that you've been talking about the work, right? Like that's totally what you live for. Um, that kind of work, no affectation. So, in you know, he is that that kind of white wizard of Vancouver, <laughs> and um, I think in I know, some isn't ways, isn't he more Gandalf the Grey? Maybe yeah. <laughs> the way I see him skulking around the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, maybe Danny Virtue's the white white wizard. Yeah, I Danny Virtue's white wizard, and Chris Haddock is Gandalf the Grey. And I just lost two friends. Yeah, um, <laughs> no. He. Uh, he <laughs> 
the things that he does, they're so smart. Yeah. You know, and and I just wonder if if intelligence and then even Romeo section if if it is like an isolationist left coast versus central Canada kind of thing going on or if his narrative is um, too heady and patient mm. uh, to gather a network audience of more than 250,000 a week and if the cable platform would have been better for, for you know, a man like Chris Haddock to, to, to share his his stories on it and, and I certainly think so. Um, oh my God, it's just know. like with, with Romeo section though, it was it was like I'm watching all that stuff going down with you know Huawei and like all that all that stuff that's yeah. happening with China. I'm like, Chris wrote this story, or I like I yeah. watched this play out on Romeo section. It was he's so ahead of his time. He's definitely on on the pulse of things. He I, should be on like his work should be on TV nonstop. Like I just and I think I think honestly I think it's this because he's not he doesn't play politics. Uh-huh. He doesn't he's not part of the you know the Toronto you know glitterati kind of thing, uh-huh. right? And you know I th- it's sad because I th- like I don't know I'm, I I get political on my show. And, you right. know, like I, I mean, I have a lot of love for a lot of people who are at the CBC, but I just, I just, I can't believe that here we are celebrated as one of these big service production senators, you know, of mm-hmm. the world. And yet the national broadcaster doesn't have a, a narrative show that's, that's based here right Out now. Here. And it's completely I think, fucked up. I think. Oh, a, we can surround my podcast. Oh, sweet. Fucking <laughs> awesome. I, I think a big problem with a lot of what I see on the CBC is they seem too scared to make a show that they don't think everybody could watch. Yes! And 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 I think that that's impossible. Yeah. You're going to die on your sword doing that. So when you have uh, a fighter like Chris Haddock, um, he's making a show for people who will get it. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that takes a lot of faith from a network uh, in order to support that. And so you look at a lot of these shows that come out of Toronto and um, have a hard time watching. Yeah. Um, You know, they're so squeaky clean yeah. and homogenized I, hey they serve i mean there's an audience for that and they mm-hmm. s- they serve a purpose they they do you know and, but, but it's uh to please it in, in a sense it, it's it's like well there is no demographic it's all demographics yeah you know well it's basically wheel of fortune that has no demographic in a sense you yeah. know um and that i believe was the show that they dropped uh, Romeo section and they picked up a game show uh, in its spot and I believe it was Wheel of Fortune um, oh my god I, I you know I could go on forever about my admiration for what I think Chris Haddock stands for and who he is and, and what he's endeavored to do yeah. um, I think clearly one of West Western Canada's brightest lights in, in film and television in the 20 years that I've been here. Yeah. Um, I heard a rumor that he's cooking. Um, and That's I what hope, I heard, too. Yep, I, I hope uh, I hope we get to see him, see him again. We need to. Mm-hmm. We need to. All right. We're going to take a break. Perfect. And I we're going to come pee. back. <laughs> okay, and he's been holding it, I could tell, the whole time. Uh, he's been having his ra- legs crossed. So you go pee, and uh, and then when you come back, uh, we're going to talk a bit more about Henry Bowers. Sounds good. Talk about it. Talk about Stephen King. I'm just delaying it, because I don't know why I'm torturing you so you don't have to go pee. All right, go pee. We'll be right back. 
This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com. We have alluded to Henry Bowers a bit, mm-hmm. we've, and we've talked about horror. I can only imagine how big of a deal it is for you to to be yeah somebody who loves horror so much to be part of the It universe and the Stephen King universe. So, so like, what? T- tell me about like what? Did, what did you? How did the experience of being part of It Chapter Two change you? Um, man, uh, in so many ways, and and it's kind of. Until recently, I never really allowed myself to look at the scale of it, the magnitude of it. Mm. I mean, obviously, I knew things like the 2017 was the highest, you know, R-rated film in history, grossing yeah. even beyond The Exorcist, which has been out since 77 or 78, something like that. Um, so, I mean, I knew it was big, but I didn't really allow myself to think too much about it you know, in pre-production and prep, nor in shooting, or even in the aftermath, because I just felt like I'd be knocked off balance, that I'd yeah. be derailed by it. Um, and 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 I typically approach everything up here, uh, and it's kind of like the 604 line of defense. Uh, I kind of <laughs> call it in my head, where it's like I'm not taking a knee in order to make somebody else look good. Mm. Um, I'm representing not just myself but the community of actors here so if I'm if I'm stepping foot on set then I'm bringing everything that I have to it yeah um and so that was kind of the same approach moving in into it you know you know you walk into the read through and James McAvoy jumps out of his chair and extends his hands and Jessica Chastain is up next and Bill Hader's up next and you know, there's a moment there where you have to tell yourself I'm one of them yeah. and I deserve to be here yeah. and I'm just going to swing the bat and and approach the work that doesn't really make itself aware of the size of the stage yeah. um, or, you know, the, how big that particular game is. It's just a game and to go and play your game uh, in there. So, um, Does it feel different, though? Like, you know, like to because I, I know that... Um, I mean, it chapter two probably had a little bit more money than than Winter had. You know, like when you're working, and like does that when you are there and you're there to to you know to to inhabit that character. Yeah. And yet there's that kind of of backing and money and legacy and stuff involved. Does it does it change the work? One hundred percent. You know, you're shooting a page and a half a day, 
<laughs> you know wow, what I mean? Yeah. Or maybe two pages. And then if it's a three-page scene, of course, you're, you're getting into that. Um, and you've got a director that just wants to play. Um, and the best thing about Andy was showing up, having no plans. Um, Even with that much money and pressure and everything involved, the director wanted to play. He wanted to play. I love that. And, and there would be eight different versions of everything. And, and I kind of recognize what Henry Bowers was in that movie. And, and he kind of needed to be a bit of a swing character. And so yeah. the director could bring it into post and be like, this is the Henry Bowers we need. And he would have it. So we were doing things so many different ways, and mm. I didn't really have an idea of what it would be in the end, because usually you plan your trajectory, your arc. Um, yeah. That was gonna be up to him in, in post. And that was a leap of faith for me, just you know, choosing to trust Andy Muschietti, which um, he is, he's a creative genius, that guy. Yeah. Um, he's just amazing to work with. Um, so it didn't matter if you were an hour 10 of a 12 hour day, if he came up with something, we would go with it. If I came up with something, we would go with it. And it wasn't like you cemented it and blocking an hour one. It just continued to grow and shape and develop. And I mean, yeah, he had, if he wanted to make the camera do a backflip, he had the gimbal to do it. Wow. And, and he, you know, he had all the bells and the whistles and the toys and, and he would set things up to do and, and it would be like, I don't know if this is going to work, but I want to try it. And so there was an hour and a half dedicated to something that we knew may not work, but we were going to try it. And he would continue to, to do that throughout shooting. Um, so the sense of economy is, is different. Yeah. You know. We can afford to take some risks. We can afford to play. We can With afford to experiment. $70 million, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah. But, you know, with the Chapter 2, they've now they've crossed a billion dollars for the franchise. So um, they, they could afford it. Um, you know, it's changed. Um, it's opened doors is one thing that has changed. Um, so casting directors in around the United States are answering emails and picking up the phone. Um, mm. And we're getting opportunities uh, to to put our hat in the ring for some things that I'd like to get, you know, be a part of moving forward. Uh, some things that I just wouldn't have had a realistic chance at before. Yeah. Um, I'm papered. So I'm, I'm legal to work in the United States for the next three years. So I'll be spending a lot more time in my trailer down there. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, ultimately it's uh, what's changed is is that I, I just feel like there's more. And, and I felt for a while there that I, I was kind of hitting my head off the ceiling, that mm. I, I, was, I wasn't going to break into that uh, transformative project that really put my name on that, like, list. Yeah. You know what I mean? To get on, like, even if I'm 12 deep on a producer's list, but to at least just, you know, be show on up. on the list. Just to yeah. be on these lists. Um so uh, a little bit of that, and um, I think my family thinks I'm rich now. Um, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, there's some. There's a few emails that I'm getting. I'm yeah. like, where are you going here? Yeah. Um, but um, you know, it was it was my first SAG project, so that that also changed. And that that was interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna learn what SAG residuals look like. Um, what what that's all about. Um, but in terms of like. I don't feel different as as an actor. Yeah, I feel encouraged is about it, and I feel like it was another one of those projects where I I got to go deep, and, and I got to deliver something that was 
um, gritty and textured and psychologically complex um, with more people. Mm. Um, so I, I felt for, you know, for the first time in a sense, like when it was all done and I'd gone to the premiere, it just kind of dawned on me how many people are actually going to see this. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool feeling. Well, I'm very happy that you came here and spoke with me today. Thanks. I'm and not an asshole. No, you're not. <laughs> he is not an asshole. You're not an asshole. This was del- for our first interview, official interview. This was absolutely delightful. Please come back. Anytime. Uh, will do. Unlike that other podcaster, I will remember your name. Uh, but now it's neat to have the backstory for all the work of yours that I have enjoyed over the years. Teach Grant, where can our listeners find you on the social media? I'm getting off Facebook okay. presently. <laughs> I've left that message that's saying DM me your details because I'm abandoning this platform. I mean, it is a garbage fire. It is It is. A, it is a fucking Run by dumpster an fire. Run awful person. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and especially what's come to light with uh, them being complicit with spreading um, basically fake news. Fake and, news, and hate, political. and uh, being complicit in genocide in yeah. Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's got to go. Yeah. And also, I mean, are, are we on a time crunch here? Because this is a thought that I have. with. We are with, not on a time with crunch. With Facebook. And the reason why I didn't sign up till like 2012 or 2011. Oh, you were and, a late adopter. Yeah, is yeah. I always kind of saw it as a potential intelligence tool. Um, and I also saw it as kind of, in a way, a cesspool of narcissism. And and I eventually got on it because I wanted to keep in touch with cousins and yeah. relatives, and it became interesting. <laughs> yeah. The next thing you know, you've got this window uh, into people, and it was a window that I just kind of felt I shouldn't be having. Yeah. Because some people had an online perso- persona that I didn't, recognize yeah. like playing a fantasy version well because it's all themselves. curated right it's yeah. not even about like how they are it's how they want people to see them and then yeah. you get insight from that and it yeah. can be super jarring yeah. jarring and you stop liking the flesh and blood person because of this electronic version of themselves or you get a look into their politic or their humanities yeah. uh, and that becomes really difficult and I don't know if ignorance was bliss but it just seemed <laughs> You know, for me, finding yeah. me on Instagram where sunsets and puppies um, in few words uh, is, I think, how I like my social media. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at Twitter right now. I'm on Twitter as well, but I'm thinking of getting off that too, just with both elections, politics the way they have been yeah. for the last three years. Um, I'm, I feel like, and were you in Ottawa in the mid 90s at all? Uh, I, I didn't live there. I visited in the n- mid-90s. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like we've kind of run full circle because I felt like when I went to university in the mid-90s, Ottawa was definitely light years ahead of the rest of the country in terms of like political correctness, they called it back then. Oh, yeah. And, and these uh, newer ways of respecting and treating and looking at each other. Yeah. And so I feel like, in a sense, we're kind of like I'd, I've been here before mm. um, and I, I find I'm at present um, I've long believed a lot of these things but the gunfire on Twitter and you know in such short bursts back and forth um, I feel like some of these conversations need to be meaningful exchanges of yeah. ideas and when people are speaking they don't always have 
concrete formed opinions yet. They're developing as they talk. We affect one another in how we exchange our ideas and yeah. we can reach new conclusions. You know, the, the, the difference between, um, you know, truth or, or facts and an opinion um, that we can have different ideas, come into an engagement and leave with some shared understanding. Twitter is just mic drop and it just oh yeah it's it's, it's, it's just, like it it's drives me nuts. slogans and and people like people I had somebody comment on something I posted recently that well you they didn't follow me it was like you clearly don't have any understanding about what it means to be a person of color or diversity I'm like okay I, I like you don't know me yeah <laughs> you have no idea what my life is and I and I, I got really like huffy I'm like wait a second like I it doesn't matter, right? It, like I, I, it sucks that they felt that they could that they could comment on that way, mm-hmm. but it's like they don't know me, and it's it's ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. And I and like I could get into this and like engage with them in that way and yell and argue, but it's not going to serve any purpose, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting. But I like it too because when I was like mer- stranded in Europe in the summertime. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Eng- and I ended up in the English countryside, and I didn't know when I was ever going to come home. Mm-hmm. Like I did, like I, I went back to Twitter and Instagram, and mm-hmm. I felt connected to my my community. Well, you could check you know? the weather in Vancouver. Check for the sure weather, or just a, like on. a reminder that there was that my you know my life was it extended beyond mm-hmm. the hospital corridor that I was in in the English countryside. So I mean, it's I I like just to be in charge of my own interactions with uh, with social media. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I just I and I'm I need to recurate my Twitter, I think, in order to set it up so that it's not such an angry place. Yeah. Um, like, fa- you know, Instagram for me, it's just all skateboarding, surfers, professional photographers, and dogs. Yeah. Um, um, and before we leave today, I do want you, I love to give shout outs to the pets in our lives. Oh, yeah. So, because uh, I'm assuming you're going to listen to this at some point and mm-hmm. your dogs are going to be there. So, uh, likely. Yeah. So, tell, tell us about your dogs before you go. Um, I have a little Mexi rescue from Sayulita that I picked up in 2014. Um, she has a mohawk. Uh, uh, her she's name cooler is, than all people. Yeah. Her name is Chica. My wife likes to dress her up in a jean jacket with like punk patches all over very it. Very nice, very it's important to accessorize. Yeah, Hi Chica. And, and she she colored Chica's mohawk pink once, which I wasn't a fan of because it was only food coloring. Ah, that's I awesome. just I'm not big on dying dogs. Um <laughs> but she looked, I live for she, that Instagram content, yeah, however. She she looked rad. And then I've got Shasta. Hi and, Shasta. Yeah, she's a year and a half old and she's a very white yellow lab and I've only ever had black labs Yeah. and my wardrobe my hardwood floors my truck everything was curated towards a black dog Yeah. and this this white dog is everywhere my yes. room my Roomba's tired like if I open my fucking front door Roomba would just keep going like Roomba would be way down the street and wouldn't turn back oh poor Roomba yeah oh and black labs I mean I grew up with them mm-hmm. they're the best they're the smartest they're the most loyal uh but you know what we we don't rescue dogs dogs rescue us so you're you're uh shasta and chica it's uh doesn't matter what color they are 
No. They rescued you. Yeah. And they, <laughs> they don't give a shit about my yeah, dark colored wardrobe. Yeah. And frankly, that is what lint rollers are for. Um, okay. So did you say, so we can find you on Twitter? Twitter. Okay. Instagram and Facebook for like nine more days. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and we will put links to all of those in the in the foot the episode footnotes. And to our listeners, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Please like and subscribe, and if you are so inclined, leave us a review. Those help us find even more listeners. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at yvrscreenscene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me. Sabrina Furminger and is produced and edited by Simon Furminger. We give special thanks to Tyson Braddock and Paul Furminger. We're family business for technical support and Dane Davile for the original music. YVR Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut!